This is episode 553 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the Christian life, God makes it pretty simple for his children to follow him by offering them only two choices and two outcomes. These two choices, however, are portrayed in several different ways in Scripture. For example, there's the choice between light and darkness, or life and death. There's good fruit or bad fruit, or the wide road and the narrow path from Matthew 7. There's walking by the Spirit or by the flesh. There's having faith or doubt, the blessings and curses, boldness and fear, embracing truth and deception, and many other mutually exclusive examples of either God's way or man's way but essentially they all boil down to the choice between obedience and disobedience. And there's never a third option, no middle ground. You are either all in or all out. You are either right or wrong and nothing in between. And yet in each of our lives, we have to make these choices almost daily. Solomon is a chilling example of someone who chose wisely in his youth and then made disastrous choices as he got older. He did not grow wiser with age. When he was young, Solomon chose the wisdom of God and his intimacy over wealth and popularity and the fleeting pleasures of sin. But when he got older, he forgot who God was and followed his own heart and the wisdom of this fallen age, and he lost the most important things in his life, like faith, purpose, and meaning. But this was only the beginning of Solomon's woes, and I believe you will find, unfortunately, that you will relate to many of the ways Solomon tried to find satisfaction in life by gratifying the flesh, only to come up empty, depressed, and dry. So let me invite you to join us as we learn what to do by not doing what the once wisest man who ever lived did. I know that sounds strange. And let's learn from his mistakes so we won't have to make him ourselves as we leave Laodicea behind. Uh, We looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to just look at the last verse or two before we we kind of move into chapter 2. I do want to tell you before I begin that the testimony that I have heard from most Christians kind of goes like this. When I first got saved, man, I was fired up. I mean, Jesus came into my life and changed me miraculously. I didn't care where he sent me. I didn't care what he wanted me to do. I was willing to go on the mission field. I was willing to reconcile relationships. I was willing to do everything. All I wanted to do is move closer to him. You know, I volunteered for everything at church. I, I just hungered after his word. This, this Bible that kind of was just kind of archaic to me all of a sudden became life and breath, and I started reading the passages and memorizing scripture. Man, it was incredible. Okay, so where are you now? Again, if you choose a metric. Where are you now? Let's say if you were a 10 back then, where are you compared to then now? Most believers, literally, in my experience, in the high 90s, super high 90% of believers are something less than they once were before. Most people's attitude is like this. Yeah, I remember I used to be all fired up. I used to be all about Jesus, but life got in the way. I realized that 
you know, Jesus made things difficult at work, and, and then I went ahead and got married. Now I have a house, and I have bills, and I have things I need to do, and I'm raising kids, and, and I just don't have the time for Christ like I used to because, I mean, I still love him and all, but, you know, life, I can't be so heavenly-minded that I'm no earthly good. I don't know where that came from, the pit of somewhere, but... The, the fact is most believers feel like that. You know, that, yeah, I, I need to, I need to do better. Like maybe, maybe I used to do better, but I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if it was a slow fade. I don't know if I just kind of drifted away. I mean, I still love the Lord, but I have not yielded to Him near as much as I did at one time in my life. It's almost universal in the church, especially in the West, that a lot of people have that kind of testimony. If you read, since Jeanette brought up Revelation, if you read chapters 2 and chapters 3, the letter to the church at Ephesus, for example, the church that was there and witnessed Christ, what he says to them, what the Lord says to them, is remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember? Solomon is going through that exact same thing. I need you to understand that you know, Solomon became king, and he was very humble, and he asked the Lord, the Lord basically said to Solomon, you ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And instead of asking for wealth and prosperity and long life and, you know, no problems and perfect health, what he asked for was wisdom. God, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me a discerning heart? I'm just a simple man. You placed upon me this incredible task of governing your people. I'm ill-equipped to do it. So if you will inhabit me, give me your presence, give me your gifts, let me have your wisdom and your understanding, then that's my request. I mean, it's a very honorable prayer request. And God said, if you remember, because you didn't ask, for all these temporal things like riches and wealth and easygoing life and stuff of that nature, I'm going to give you that anyway, plus your request. So Solomon has the best of both worlds for anybody. And he starts his life off really um, wanting to, to do what is right. I mean, we read the Proverbs. The Proverbs and Song of Solomon were written uh, when he was younger. We find out Ecclesiastes is written when he is older, and all of a sudden he just wants the wisdom of God, and he writes these proverbs, and God's inspiring him to do that. We get the Song of Solomon, and he's writing this testimony using the relationship between a husband and a wife to communicate to the world how he feels and how he loves the Lord, and you see this passion, and it's just it's amazing when you read that. But then... Uh, but then life got in the way. I'm governor. I'm king. I need to make some political alliances. And I'm all of a sudden become very rich. And even though Solomon knew that one of the things the Lord told Israel not to let happen to their kings was them to multiply money, multiply wives, multiply horses, because you had to go to Egypt to actually get the horses, Solomon did exactly the opposite. Then he turned around and he let his wives and concubines, a thousand of them, I mean like, really, a thousand of them erect satanic, pagan idols in the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't do anything about it. The, as we looked at when we first started studying this in uh, the Kings, that when he was older, 
his wives turned his heart away from following the Lord. And as I shared with you, if you look at the life of Solomon, he was 45 years old when that happened. Not what we would consider old. And yet, nevertheless, um, he let it all slide. We get to Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, he's going, I, I don't feel close to the Lord. I can't find happiness in this life. You know, I feel like I'm just on this treadmill. All life seems like nothing. It's like vanity. Here we are, Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and I'm looking at my entire life, looking at everything out there. It's vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. The only meaning I had in my life is when I had a tight relationship with God. I know I could return to that, but instead I'm not. I'm going to continue trying to find happiness in all the wrong places, even though I know the truth. It's almost like our relationship with Christ at 50 is half of what it used to be when we first got saved is 20. And we know what we need to do to repent and go back and put him first in all things. But the cost is too high, or we don't have the time, or I'm not really interested in doing that. So we're limping along, trying to find something in this world to satisfy this nagging hunger in our soul. This is exactly where Solomon is. And so we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 1 and lead into chapter 2 today. And I think some of the things you're going to see um, hopefully will ring home to you because they certainly did to me. We're looking at life from the inside now, moving to the outside. From the inside, I don't have a five-year relationship with God. I know that. So therefore, I'm going to move my satisfaction from having intimacy with God to outside temporal things, hoping that will bring me some satisfaction. So Solomon, um, what are you going to do? What do, you, uh, what do you want to do to solve this issue? Begins in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. He says this, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. I know that when I do this, nothing is going to come of it. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's the first smart thing Solomon said so far in Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. We're going to look those words up in just a second. And I perceived that this also was grasping for the wind, trying to hold on to something that I can't. I can't see it. I can't grasp it. And if I grabbed hold of it, I really don't know what I would do with it. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So Solomon has decided to make a decision. He's decided to head off in a certain area of his life, and he is going to use all his mental faculties and gratify all his flesh to try to determine what is the true meaning of life. Is it wisdom? I'm going to look at madness, and I'm going to look at folly. He says, an eye, that's his action, set my heart. And every time you see the word leb, that's the Hebrew word that's translated heart here. It's the same word he uses in the book of Proverbs. And it means basically your mind. It means your volition, your personality, your soul. It's everything about you. It's not just your physical heart. From the Hebrews, they figured that everything, um, everything about you originated here. 
And so therefore, when it's talking about I set my heart to that, I set my desire for that, my mind to that, I decided to find out what the truth is in a passionate way. And I decided to know. And again, when you see in the Hebrew the word yada, that means gnosko in the Greek. It means to know by experience, to know personally, to, uh, to not just know cognitively like book knowledge, to actually place your favor upon, to choose, to be intimate with this kind of knowledge. And so when you see those words that I have up here, you'll know what they mean. And I set my heart to know wisdom. We've looked at wisdom. We know what that means. That means having a right, prudent understanding of the things of God and the things of man. And I also wanted to know, by experience, madness. This word means delusion. It's the kind of person that decides they're going to try anything just to see how it works out. Hey, you know, I've never, um, I've never done this sin, so let me go do it and see if it really works for me. Hey, I've never jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. Hey, I've never, um, you know, done all these kind of carnal things. It's someone out there that's just trying to get their sensual pleasure in any way it can just to see how it feels kind of a crazy person. That's why it uses the word madness. It means to be rash and foolish to an extreme degree. And I want to be pretty stupid. I'm going to make some dumb decisions. I'm going to do folly or foolishness. That's a life devoid of wisdom. I want to try wisdom. Then I want to try everything sensual I can to an extreme degree, being really rash. Then I want to try folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. I'm covering the entire gambit here. And the reason why is because I want to know if there's any hope, any truth, any satisfaction in doing anything in this world except following God completely. And you know what I found out by experience? It's translated perceived. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew, yada. What I found out personally for my own is that this also, among other things, is grasping for the wind. It means absolutely nothing because there's one God There's one creator. He's allowed me to have a relationship with him. I've had a relationship with him. He's used me in a mighty way. God's wisdom through me was known throughout all the world. So therefore, all these people came to hear God's wisdom through me. I was exalted because of my relationship with him, and I threw it all away because I wanted to go my own way and have my own understanding and my own wisdom. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that for much wisdom is much grief. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. The more you find out, it's like I really wish you hadn't told me that. And he who increases in knowledge in a fallen world where there's no antidote for evil increases sorrow. Here's what the passage means. The more you know about men... The more you know about mankind, the more you know about human nature, the more you know about you, the more you grieve over the fact that I'm unable to live a righteous life, that I'm not satisfied in the things that I'm doing. And yet the closer I get to God, the more I look at this world and realize how grieved I am by it, how evil it is, how People are just like mindless sheep that are, that are going along where they're led and, and not realizing that their end is destruction. Because in this life and in this world, there's nothing I can do to remove evil. 
Nothing. All I can do is have a relationship with the one who transcends evil, and I've already walked away from that. So, Solomon, what are you going to do? We're sitting there talking to Solomon after he's come to these conclusions. We're maybe having dinner with him, and he shared that he determines that everything is just like chasing the wind, that nothing really matters, that he's not really happy, and we can't understand why. How can you not be happy? You have all the money. You have all the friends. You have this huge, mighty house. You have everything anybody on this world would ever want, and you're not happy. How do I I even relate to that? And so we, we ask Solomon these questions. And we find out that Solomon, after determining the pursuit of wisdom, was also meaningless and provided no satisfaction. He says, you know what? I don't want to go back to a relationship with God. I don't want to be that guy anymore. I've, I've evolved from him. I've deconstructed my faith. I'm, I'm different than that right now. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use every dime I have in the bank, every moment I have left on this earth, all the influence I have, and I'm going to try to find in the flesh, sensually, what I can do to, to fill this void in my heart, to make me feel like my life really matters. And it's almost as if, as I'm reading this, it's like Solomon feels this this longing in his soul for God, longing for a relationship that he walked away from, longing for an ability to commune with his creator, and he knows what he needs to do, but he throws his hand over his ears and just goes like, I don't want to hear that anymore. I've already made up my mind. I already know what I'm going to do, and it has absolutely nothing to do with God. Now, here's the sad part. Uh, David sinned greatly. Um, David should have been out with his armies, and he didn't. David saw Bathsheba. He took her in and had an illicit relationship with her. She became pregnant. David covered his sin by having her husband killed, and then thought he got away with it until Nathan the prophet came and pointed his finger in David's chest. You remember the story, and said, you're the man. And we find psalm after psalm after psalm where David is anguishing over his sin, crying out for God for forgiveness, and God continued to call David, even with his sin, a man after his own heart. Do you remember? That never happened to Solomon. Never. There's never any indication in Solomon's life that he repented, that he went back the way it was. You know, we see at the end of Ecclesiastes, he comes to the same conclusion Job does. You know, best thing to do is serve God, but it doesn't show he ever did. We don't see any indication of that in the Chronicles or the, uh, or the Kings. And it's a very sad picture of a man who had everything, including an intimate relationship with God, and walked away from it all. And so in chapter 2, he begins that process of trying to figure out where he can find happiness. It says, I said in my heart, come now, here's what we're going to do. I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely, even when I did that, it meant nothing. It was just vanity, some fool running around just trying to be happy all the time and satisfy every fleshly lust that he he has doesn't bring happiness. Solomon knew that, yet he did it anyway. He refused to repent. You know, I said to myself, 
in my heart, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out, and my action, I'm going to test. I'm going to try to prove or determine the true nature of something. I'm going to test my heart with mirth. Now, mirth is not just joy and happiness. Mirth is a word that means the actual experience of feeling joy and happiness. It's not like it's a noun. It's like it's a verb. It's, 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 it's more than just, yeah, I, 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 feel, I, I feel glad about that, but it's the actual experience of feeling glad. It's the sensual part of that. It's the, the warm fuzzies and the tears and you know, the giddy laughter. It's all the things Solomon was looking for. I will test my heart with mirth. And therefore, my conclusion is, because it feels good, then enjoy pleasure. Go after it. Have a good time. Make it all about you. Forget about everybody else. Forget about your relationship with God. Forget about all your responsibilities. Forget about the fact that you're king and people are looking up to you. Hey, if drinking makes you happy, go, go drink. If being with women makes you happy, go get more than a thousand women. Can't even imagine. If... um. If, you know, accumulating money makes you happy, then build more buildings, put more bank accounts, get more Bitcoin, do whatever you want to do to make you happy. That was his conclusion in the beginning. So my conclusion is go just enjoy pleasure. And then I looked at what I was doing and I said, it's pointless. It's meaningless. Would I get up in the morning just to have another banquet and feast with people I don't really like? Did I have people waiting on me all the time and taking me places I don't want. I'm bored. I mean, we talked about that at the end of, or in the middle of chapter one. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm bored. There has to be more to this life. And I know that in my heart, but I refuse to change. I refuse to change. I'm living a life of selfish gratification, and I don't care how it affects anybody else. I don't care how it affects God. I don't care how it affects man. I don't care how it affects my family or my children or the people that are dependent on me. I don't care about anything but me. So, um, again, we're playing golf with Solomon, and we've got him in one of those candid moments, and we're able to ask him a few questions. And so there's some logical questions, Solomon. I'm, you're inconsistent here. You're talking about trying to prove happiness by stuff, and then you're saying that the conclusion is for you to just go enjoy pleasure, forget about responsibility, forget about leaving a lasting influence on others, forget about finishing well, just go out and do what you want to do, and yet you say that when you do that, it brings you no happiness that it's vanity, that it's empty, it's meaningless, it's pointless. So if it's vanity, why do you continue doing it? I mean, what more does God have to do to put a stop sign in front of you and say, where you're heading is wrong, turn around and go the opposite way? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why don't you stop what you're doing now? Why don't you cut your losses? Why don't you repent to the Lord? Why don't you experience his forgiveness? Let him bless you with his wisdom again, and then be the man that you were in the beginning of your life. Go back and do the things at first. Well, um, I don't know. I just, I, I don't, I, I don't want to do that. But I know, but you're continuing in what doesn't work. 
I mean, you're, you're running headlong as fast as you can into just sinful, sensual, meaningless, vanity, pleasure. And you know it doesn't work, and yet you keep doing it over and over again. Why don't you go back to the relationship with God and forget this meaningless relationship with your flesh? I should, as we're talking to him, but I'm not because I guess I just want to bang my head against the wall one more time. I guess I want to learn that lesson all over again. I guess if it didn't work the first time, I'll just try, try harder. And as I'm sitting here listening to Solomon talk, it's almost like I'm thinking, now why are you acting so much like me? Can't you look at our lives and see that we're doing the same thing you're doing, just on a lesser scale because you have much more ability to have pleasure than we do? And if it's not working for me or for you or for anybody you know, why are you continuing that way? It's really simple. Um, because I refuse to repent, I refuse to say no to my sensual pleasures, and therefore I'm going to double down on my sensuality. You know what? That's, that's what the problem is. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough wives. I, I haven't got drunk enough. I haven't tried the new designer uh, drugs out there. I'm not dressed in the finest clothes. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's more software I can download and more toys and trinkets I can have. I can have the latest cars and the latest um, planes and, and eat in the finest restaurants. Maybe there's more to this life that I'm missing. So what I'm going to do is try even harder to go out there in this life, and Solomon was able to do it, and try to somehow fill this nagging void in my soul, and you and I both know how it's going to turn out. Yet many of us are really on the same path, just to a much lesser degree. Verse 2 and 3. I said of laughter, madness. It's crazy just to sit around and try to laugh all the time. It's not funny anymore. And of mirth, I mean, what does that accomplish? What is, what's the lasting impact of me experiencing pleasure and just being reckless with every sin available out there just to see how it feels? So I searched my heart on how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. I want you to read that passage again slowly especially verse 3, and I want you to tell me if you don't see a logical fallacy in there, an inconsistency in his thinking that, uh, that many of us struggle with. Do you see the logical fallacy in here? He's trying to satisfy his pleasure, yet trying to think that I'm holding on to my wisdom at the same time. It's almost like I'm asking God to justify my actions. I said of laughter, madness. It's senseless, it's silly, it's pointless just to sit around and just giggle and laugh all the time when there's no point to it, there's no meaning to it. It's just some sensual experience. And of mirth, again, the experience and manifestation of joy and gladness, I mean, what, is it, what does that matter? What, what possible good does it bring to anyone? I still wake up every morning feeling like my life is meaningless. Even though it appears on the outside, I'm happy. And this is what happens when you live a life only for yourself. Selfishness never leads to happiness. And in our culture with this plague of narcissism, which kind of 
filters into everything fed by social media, um, this truth is even more so today. So what are you going to do, Solomon? And this is the key passage here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to search in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. At the same time, I'm going to try to guide my heart with wisdom. Well, you, you want some wisdom, Solomon? Don't gratify your flesh with wine. And how to hold on to folly. And so somehow, when I go from wine to reject wisdom to just being stupid and foolish, somehow it's going to reveal to me what the purpose of life is for every man under the sun all the days of their life. And all the days of their life, Solomon's saying, I wish I could determine whether it was eat, drink, and be merry. But the answer, of course, is no. I want you to watch this. Solomon never asked the question, is it proper for me to gratify my flesh? Is it proper for me to gratify my flesh with wine or with women or with food or everybody taking care of me? Is it proper and a right thing to do for me to have everybody serve me and we, me give nothing back to anyone else? Is sin and selfishness and being conceited, is that the way I should go? He's already made the assumption that it is. He's already determined this is the course of action I'm going on because in my mind, in my wisdom, this is what I need to do. So I'm going to search about the process. I've already determined what I'm going to do. What I'm setting my heart to is determine how it's to be done. I don't want to go to some dive in downtown Gastonia and get beat up by some biker, so I'm not going to drink there. Instead, I'm going to have these big banquets and the finest wines and and make it kind of an upscale deal. So therefore, it kind of fits my standing in the community. So my, my search is not whether it's right or wrong. My search is how to do wrong culturally acceptably. Make sense? It's kind of like a Christian. I don't want to commit all those deep, dark, immoral sins that lost people do. Instead, I want to commit kind of the same sins, but I want to do them like a Christian does. Because after all, you know, um, they're really dark, and Jesus wants us to be in the light, and I'm just going to be okay in the lukewarm area, better than I used to be, not like I should be. And somehow we think that's wisdom from God. Here's what he said, I searched my heart on how, the process of gratifying my flesh. To have my flesh dragged off, to pull away, to just treat it as something separate. And I want to do that with wine. And wine, of course, in the Old Testament imagery, gives the impression of feasting and dancing and merriment and and big parties and stuff of that nature. It's not like he was sitting at home drinking Ripple by himself watching YouTube. He says, I searched my heart on how to gratify my flesh with wine, but I know that's wrong. So at the same time while I'm doing that, I'm going to try to figure out how to guide my mind with wisdom. Um, That's impossible. I mean, it's really simple. If you were asking God to give you wisdom, the wisdom he would give you is the same wisdom he gave you in the beginning. And the wisdom would be to stop gratifying your flesh, 
You have the flesh and the spirit. It's, you know, it's not like they can be joined together as one. They're diametrically opposed to each other. So Solomon, the wisdom that you're looking for is somehow trying to justify your sin by your own understanding and your own mind, just what got you in this situation in the first place. You knew that the kings of Israel were not to multiply wives. And you, you jettisoned that when you took on your second wife. I know, but I really didn't love her. I did it because I made a political alliance with this governor over here. And to to solidify our alliance, I basically took his wife to be one of mine. So now he and I are family. And that's pretty much just what we do in those days. And so therefore, I've already made that decision that it was politically expedient to break God's law. And then the second and third and fifth and 20th and 100th and 200th and 300th wife wasn't that big a deal. You ever been there? Even in just some of the sins that you commit? And I've justified it that it's okay. This is what God expects because after all, you know, he gave me a mind and he expects me to use it or worse than that, it just felt right in my heart. Your heart and my heart that is so despicably wicked, the scripture says, who can know it? So I searched my heart on how to somehow gratify my flesh and at the same time do it in a proper upstanding way befitting a king while guiding my heart with wisdom. And the process of how to lay hold of folly to do really crazy, stupid stuff that makes no sense at all but but feels good fleshly-wise. And I'm going to do it until I figure out What's the purpose of life? What the purpose of man is that what is good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I've been warned by the priest. I've been warned by the prophets. I've been warned by the scripture that the direction I'm going is wrong, but I don't care because I want to do what I want to do, and I've already justified it in my way of thinking. Again, we're having a meal with Solomon. And in a moment of candor, we feel free to ask him a couple questions. So Solomon, what are, you, what are you saying? Well, I'm saying this. I just want to know how to make my life happy. I just want to know how to be happy because I, I, don't, I don't feel happy. At one time I did, I felt happy and content when I had God's presence, but I don't want to go back and do that because he's going to make me give up a lot of the stuff I'm doing now. And it's going to be really tough for me politically to dump my wives you know, and send them back home to some political adversary because that's against God's law. And then I have to tear down all these uh, Asherah and, and Baal idols that are in the temple of God. And the wives that I do like are going to get upset with me. And the kingdom's going to get mad. And all the people that are just feasting off all my money, they're going to get upset with me. And you know what? I just, I don't want to do that. I just want to, I just want to make my own life happy. And therefore, I need to figure out how to do that. I've already decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to have wine and folly and mirth and anything else I can do. And so what I want to do is find out a way to do that better, do it more efficiently, do it in a way that makes me feel content. And I don't know about you, but when I look at this, I, uh, I see a problem in his thinking, don't you? If life is all about the flesh and life is all about sin then there's nothing in your life for the higher pleasures, for the the ability to have a relationship with God, to commune with him. And Solomon had it and walked away from it for trinkets and toys. 
So Solomon now goes, okay, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to, um, I, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to work harder. It didn't work at the first time. I mean, I'm going to accumulate so much stuff that many of us look at this list and become jealous. It's almost like if I could just have a little bit of what Solomon had, I mean, then I'd be happy. I would never ask for anything else again if I could have money and cars and, and you know, people doing everything that I want and just my, my slightest whim materialized in front of me. If I could just taste what Solomon tasted, then I would be happier than he is. What an incredible, selfish man to not enjoy the things that I'm working my whole life just to achieve. So he threw himself into the work. He grew his real estate portfolio to something amazing. He had houses in the mountains. He had houses at the beach. He had a house in Hawaii. He could get on a private, private jet and fly there anytime he wants. He has the, the most upgraded of everything. He's totally energy efficient. He does whatever he wants to do. He has personal servants. He has entertainers. If he decides that he wants to hear um, some famous band play tomorrow night. He calls them and they come to his place and play. He can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And he brags about the stuff that he does. Here's what I have done. Here's what I can do. I have so much money that I have this flock of accountants just trying to count it. I have to build down barns and, and banks and put new money everywhere. I mean, it's incredible the wealth that I have. No one on the planet has more than I have. And I wake up every morning still feeling lonely. Why is that, Solomon? Well, because I, I'm under this delusion that I'm serving God. I'm under this delusion that what I'm doing is, is right, that somehow I have my wisdom, that this is what God has done for me. This is how God is blessing me. That somehow, by living this kind of life as a model to everybody else, that somehow I'm now well-pleasing to God. And you and I both know he's not. And yet he continues down that track anyway, just like many of us. I know it's not right for me to do this, but I've decided I don't want to quit because it's too hard. It's too painful. It costs me too much. And so therefore, I'm going to do what I want to do. And God's just going to have to bless me because God wants me just like I am. And he just is so thrilled about having me because after all, it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I do rather than what his word says. And plus, it's too painful to separate myself, separate myself from relationships that he's told me are wrong. And I'm going to do it anyway. So here's what Solomon says. I want you to notice, and we're only going to look at these two verses this way. He says, I made my works great. I built myself houses, not others, myself. And I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to give the growing uh, trees of the grove. I did everything for me. Not for anybody else, just for me. I made myself, my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools in which to water the growing trees of the grove. Not only that, I acquired male and female servants. 
and I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. All of the other kings who ever lived had nothing compared to what I have. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and of the providences. They brought money to me as tribute. I acquired male and female singers. Hey, I want to hear a song. Sing a song. I want a band. I want a chorus. I want to, come on, Simon Cowell works for me. Put together a show. I acquired male and female singers and the lights of the son of men, all kinds of musical instruments. Anything that I want was mine because I was somehow deluded into believing this is how life is done. And then we get to verse 9, which is the last verse we're going to look at today. And we find that Solomon proclaims a truth, and then he proclaims a deception. The same deception many are believing today. Here's the truth. The truth is, so I became great and excelled more than all who were in me in Jerusalem. Absolutely. On a fleshly level. On a fleshly level. But the deception was this. And my wisdom remained with me. Yeah. Your wisdom, Solomon. Your wisdom, your wisdom on how to govern a kingdom, your wisdom on how to accumulate wealth, your, your wisdom on how to, how to make everybody happy, your wisdom on how to make you happy, your wisdom about everything that pertains to you, but not God's wisdom, because everything you're doing is the exact opposite of what you told other people to do in the Proverbs. Everything is opposite of God's truth, but you're just rocking on like it's okay. So that was Solomon. The question is, what about us? I mean, what happens to a guy like Solomon when we exchange the truth of God and try to convince ourselves that the lie is actually a truth? I mean, what are the consequences of those actions? What are the consequences when you and I know how we're supposed to raise our kids and we choose not to do that because it's not politically expedient or they don't really like it or we just want to be like the rest of the culture? What do we do when we spend all our money on us, not necessarily giving God what belongs to him, that we acquire everything for us and share with no one, when it's always about us and not anyone else, when we have relationships that the Lord says you're not supposed to have, but we're going to do it anyway, when we marry the wrong people, when we take the wrong jobs, when we do everything that we want to do and ignore what God says, what are the consequences? What is the price to be paid? What can we learn from Solomon? And it's this sin of self-delusion. And so uh, what I want to share with you in closing is a little passage we looked at on Tuesday night. Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus basically tells his followers that there are two gates and two paths to follow. two ways. Only two. There's never more than two. There's only two. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. That's one way. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. There's nothing in between. There's not like I can have a little of the narrow and a little of the wide and I'll be kind of in the, the middle section. There's never a middle section with Christ. There's never a middle section with God about anything. 
It's always one way or the other way. It's a clear, delineated, laid out choice. And there are many who go in by it with their own wisdom. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And this is what's presented to both of us. This is what Solomon's choice was. You know, Solomon, you can have a relationship with me and I can bless your life, but you either follow my way or your ways. What you're doing is try to be in the middle. What you're doing is you're going to find out ways to gratify your flesh and then think it's my will and retain your wisdom while you're doing it. It doesn't work that way. It's one way or the other. It is always two choices. Always. Example I gave you is the wide road and the narrow road. Two gates, two ways, two roads, only two choices. You have life and death, only two choices. There's nothing in between. There's nothing in between between hot and cold, between being warm for the hot for the Lord or cold for the for uh, towards Him. And what we want to do is live in the lukewarm kind of in-between section, the Laodicean section. And Jesus says, I'm so disgusted with that, I want to vomit you out of my mouth in Revelation chapter 3. Because there's only two choices, and what we're trying to do is make it three choices. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the world, I'm kind of satisfied in between, and Jesus says anathema. It doesn't work that way. One or the other. Light and darkness, John chapter 1, you know, Jesus is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with the light, yet walk in darkness, we lie. What do we lie about saying we have fellowship with the light? It doesn't work that way. He saved us for a different reason than to hedge our bets and walk around in the middle. Bible talks about you will follow the spirit or you will follow the flesh. And there's nothing in between. As a matter of fact, it says there's a constant battle going on between the spirit and the flesh. You must choose which one to follow. A tree produces only two types of fruit, a good fruit and a bad fruit. A tree, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That's in uh, Matthew chapter 7. It's not like, well, this is, I don't know, a C minus kind of fruit. I'm okay with just having a banana that I have to break the bottom off because it's too brown to eat. It doesn't work that way. One fruit or the other fruit, you must choose. You must choose of two destinations, heaven and hell. There's nothing in between. There's no separate road that you go on. There's no intermediate place between life and death or spirit and flesh or light and darkness or hot and cold. It's always two choices. If you look at the Old Testament, God lays out for us Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 31. He lays out for us blessings and curses. Well, can I just have less blessings and less curses and kind of be in the middle? No, it doesn't work that way. If you read that, it says, if you follow me, this is how I will bless you. If you don't follow me and obey my word, this is how I will curse you. It's nothing in between. And we have grown up in, a, in the West, in the church age, where we think that it's okay to live in the shadows. And that's not that's what Solomon's trying to do. I want to gratify my flesh with whatever is out there, and I want to convince myself that it's a godly thing to do, but when I really sit down and think about it, it's meaningless. It means nothing. It provides no lasting satisfaction, and yet I continue doing it because I refuse to repent. 
I hope you see that everything with God is either or, black or white, in or out. Nothing in between. Let me give you an example from just a couple of verses here, and I'll draw to a close. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit. That's the admonition. And if I do, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Spirit on one side, flesh on the other. I will either I will lust in the flesh or I will walk in the Spirit. And if I walk in the Spirit, I'm able to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the commandment is to choose one. And it continues. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And they are contrary to one another. Two choices. You either walk in the Spirit or you, you walk in the flesh. Two choices. So therefore, you do not do the things that you wish. We have to make a conscious decision not to do what Solomon's doing and gratify the flesh in order to walk in the Spirit, to say no to our fleshly desires. And then all of a sudden, he opens up this floodgate of heaven and let us experience some of the higher things in life which literally change our total perspective on everything. A few more verses. Romans 8, 5. You recognize these. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the thing of the flesh. That's Solomon. That's exactly what you're doing, Solomon. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind, their heart, their leb on the things of the Spirit. Solomon at one time did that. He's refusing to do that now, and Paul has given us this admonition. Quit living for what is transitory and live for what is permanent. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This flesh dies. But if by the Spirit, then I put to death the deeds of the body. I say no and bury the fleshly deeds of the body. And if I do... I will live. Life and death, spirit and flesh. Got that, Solomon? James 4.4. 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That's hatred with God. And by the way, that's not agape love for the world. I don't love the world that much. It's friendship. It's philios. It means that you're a buddy with the world. That you want to pump elbows with the world, that you want to hang around the world, that you want the world to like you. You want to be successful in the world. This is where most of us fail. And if I have a desire to be pleasing to the world, I make myself, I make myself an enemy of God because there's only two choices, him and the fallen world that belongs to the enemy. There's no other way around. So I'm looking at Solomon, and I'm realizing that he had more of the world available to him than I will ever have. He made the same mistakes that I'm making, same mistakes that probably you are making, only he makes them on a grandiose scale. And then I'm doing the same thing, and probably you are too, to what Solomon is doing. Well, it's not really all that bad. And, it, you know, it's okay. It seems expedient me for doing that. Because if I, if I act like this, God, then I'm going to lose my job, and you're not big enough to give me another job. And so I'd rather just, just take care of my own little life rather than be, be about your kingdom, and on and on and on. 
that every one of us will have to make a choice. Last night, I saw this movie called Testament, and it was on VidAngel, and it was a movie about the, um, um, what would happen if the book of Acts was presented in uh, today's culture. And the more I looked at it, it was really like this guy had put together, this young guy, he's probably less than 30, had put together these five retellings of these parables and weaved them into a story where it's in the book of Acts and Luke is learning more about Jesus from Barnabas and some of the others, which were explaining some of the, uh, the stories to him. And the, and the parable that really hit me, especially looking at uh, Ecclesiastes here, was in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom parable about the man who found the treasure in the field. Do you remember the story? Really simple, just a couple verses. There was a man who found a treasure in a field, and when he saw the value of that treasure, which is the kingdom of God, he went and sold all that he had, everything that he had, which paired, paled in comparison to the treasure, went out and bought that field in order to achieve and acquire the treasure. Do you remember? Everything that he had. Every dime, every bit of security that he had, every relationship, probably jettisoned. He was homeless and penniless except for this treasure, which was far greater than everything that he had. And in case we didn't get the point in the kingdom parables, the seven of them, Jesus reiterated it by a man who was searching for great pearls. And when he found the pearl of great price, what he searched his whole life for, contentment, understanding, a relationship with God, well done, good and faithful servant, a reason to get up in the morning rather than just making yourself happy with wine. He sold everything that he had to acquire that pearl. And Jesus shared this with us to let us know the importance of the kingdom versus everything else in our world, everything else. I was very convicted when I read this account of Solomon. And by the way, it gets worse as we go through uh, the rest of chapter 2 because I realized that I've done that many times in my own life, that I, God has spoken to me about something that needs to change, and I have justified it in my mind, the king of justification. I've justified it in my mind, well, God, I, I still have a relationship with you. I still have my own wisdom, and according to me, that, that seems a little little off the boards here, so I'm going to kind of do it my way, and I guess you'll just be happy with it. And he never is, never is. And all I have to do and all you have to do is just go an inch and repentance back to him, and he comes a mile of restoring your relationship and letting you feel and experience the oneness that you once had with him. So I just want to close by just telling you that every one of us has a choice before us. If we've already made the decision to follow Christ and salvation on his terms, then the next decision we make is how we're going to live for him. And he clearly lays out for us what is required. What's required is submission and surrender and obedience, not going our own way. As a matter of fact, he even calls us doulasses, bond slaves, of him. It's our master tells us everything. Matter of fact, the things that we worry about so much, what am I going to eat and drink and wear and the money I'm going to have and take care of my retirement, Jesus says he will take care of all that stuff if we just trust him. Hard truth to live by in our culture, but nevertheless, it still is truth. And so my plea to you as he presents to us these two paths, as we see Solomon going down the wrong path and staying on the wrong path, is to choose wisely. 
and to choose him in everything that you do. Amen? Let me pray.